very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or the truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And if you want to listen to tonight's full interview and every single interview we have ever done, subscribe. Go to VeritasRadio.com and you'll get your login immediately. And the same goes for Sanitas Radio. If you really want to upgrade your life just like I have. So I hope that you can experience it too, so you can transform your life. And if you want to be a guest on this radio program, have a suggestion, or simply want to get in touch with me, just simply go to the contact button of our website. Through the ages, every generation has had to face difficult challenges. At this point in time, these challenges have taken on extreme proportions on a scale never seen before. When faced with threats and intimidation, most individuals have chosen to lower their eyes, take a step back and accept the oppressors. Others have given up, believing that nothing can be done to change the outcome and that the best thing is to bury their heads in the sand, pretending that everything is okay. Anxiety, hopelessness, frustration and despair have become a mainstream way of living. Tonight, we'll have a candid conversation about the social engineering of the 20th century, how it led to our planet being terraformed almost without our knowledge, and what we can do about it. It's not as hard as you think. The side effects of global medical experimentation are devastating and fatal unless we act. We'll discuss our Department of Education or indoctrination, the mainstream media, or the entertainment or entrainment industry. And is Babylon falling? All of it with tonight's special guest, Kara St. Louis, a writer, teacher, activist, and speaker hailing from the American Southwest, who's currently in London. Infused with the old spirit of the sovereign individual, she has been and continues to be committed to Waldorf School's teaching, which is the pedagogy center around protecting the imagination of the human being. She has been a journalist for such publications as Veterans Today and is the author of several books, including Consolata's Companion, about the dark side of iconic presence in our lives and Dangerous Imagination, Silent Assimilation, which is the paradigm-shifting book which flings the doors open to expose the vast coordinated manipulations to control and dominate humanity. She will be speaking in Vienna in a few weeks on the kidnapping of our children by the government. In late July, she embarks on a tour down under with knowledge 
we can move to the next level and take our planet back. And directly from London, England, I'd like to welcome Kara St. Louis. Hello, Kara. Welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hi, Mel. I am doing very well, and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And as I said before, I've had a few recommendations to have you on, and we finally, we finally had you come over here. Let's start with you. I read some of the bio, but I'm very curious as to what brought you to this platform tonight. Ah, well, it's uh, uh, it, it doesn't cover a long period of time, Mel. It's only been four or five years, but it's been packed. It's like universes have been packed in that four or five years. Um, I should start, I guess, at the very beginning. I I tell this story every generally every time I'm uh, new to a show, um, and for a while there, I wondered if people were tired of hearing it. And then I thought, no, most of the world really hasn't heard this story yet. So, um, the beginning of my story and how I ended up on your show started in 2010, um, July 11th, 2010, to be exact. My it was a Sunday. I was living in Maine, and at that point in time, I was a mom. I've always been a writer and a teacher and lots and lots of other things like like everybody else in the world. Uh, but essentially, at that point, I was just raising my children. And uh, we lived in a sunny little seaside town, very low population. My mother had come out to visit us. Uh, well, not visit us. She'd actually come out there to live because she knew the children were growing up and getting ready to leave home. And she wanted to spend some time with them. Now, on that Sunday, she was walking from her house to church, believe it or not, about a block and a half from her house. And um, she had just about gotten across the street and she was run down by a van, a man in a van. And she went to the hospital and uh, died in my arms a few hours later, about four hours later. Now, essentially, that seems like just a horrific experience for anybody to have. And of course, it is a horrific experience. Uh, it was for the town, for me, for my children and everything. But uh, the reality was my mother had worked for the U.S. Navy. My mother had worked for the um, Office of Naval Research here in London for many Eastern Bloc scientists and many Operation Paperclip scientists, um, of several of whom I met when I visited her. Uh, and these were men who worked with atmospheric physics. These were men who worked with microwave weapons. You know, anything state-of-the-art, anything just really out there for the Navy, including psychological warfare, meteorology, just anything that you can think of. And her job was to uh, run this uh, uh, inf- inf- information um, brochure that went out, I think, once a month, basically, called the Fact Sheet. And what the Fact Sheet was was technology transfer for these scientists around the world. And it was her job to make sure that uh, their their work was summarized, their work was accessible, their work was understandable, because many of these men and women, mostly men, did not, English was not their first language, I'm sure you can imagine. There were many Germans, for sure. example. Um, and so her job was not necessarily to understand all of the science behind what they were putting out, but certainly to make it understandable as it went around the world in summary form. And you know, she she was no scientist, but she was a very intelligent woman. And I'm sure that she understood a lot of what crossed her desk. And the fact of the matter is she couldn't talk about it with me or anybody else. But she did say to me more than once that what she saw that crossed her desk scared the hell out of her. Okay. So she saw a lot of things that I didn't know about, but I'm 
sure where, I mean, she had a pretty high security clearance. Anyway, so that putting this random, this very, very random event of her dying in that way. Um, and by the way, at that point, she was 74 years old. And I know for a fact, she could barely remember her own social security number at that point, you know. However, she was a loose end. And I kind of, it just wouldn't, the feeling that this had not been an accident just never left me, Mel. And so, of course, you hate to, I mean, that just, that just fills you with fear when you're thinking about things like that. And it took me, it, I was, I was trying to get over this horrific incident for months and months. I could not get any information about my mother's death, which was very bizarre because I was the sole survivor. I literally had to have my attorney write a letter to the uh, local police department reminding them that I had the right to the information, that there was such thing as a free, as freedom of information. Um, and that really didn't do any good for a while either. But then, um, that was July. So along about November, I got a, a letter in the mail that was hand addressed and with no return address on it. And someone had slipped a very short and sweet police report into an envelope and sent it to me. And I still don't know who sent it to me. Um, but at least I had a little bit of information. So, you know, I, you live with these things. You, you try not to think that that could be the case, but you, you wonder if that, if that, in fact, you just never left me. Now, Christmas of that year, December 31st of that year was the day that John Wheeler was found in a dumpster in Washington. Do you remember? Vaguely, refresh my memory, please. Yeah, John Wheeler was uh, a West Point graduate. He had been an advisor to three presidents. He was a, he was the guy who got the Vietnam War Memorial put up, and he uh, had been a liaison between lots of agencies that were trying to get work for the United for States government, and a liaison with the Pentagon. And then on December thirty first of twenty ten. They found his body in a dumpster and clearly, you this know, is 2010, sort of, not too long ago. Yeah. Not too long ago, not too long ago. And um, while I'm not suggesting that my mother and, and John Wheeler knew each other, it, it really sort of brought that back to the, you know, to the front of my mind that civilians working for the military tend to be very, very expendable. And the very next day, Mel, on top of that was the day all the birds started falling from the sky in Arkansas. I remember that. And the fish, it was the, it was 24 hours later and I was, and the birds were washed or the fish were washing up on the shore. And you know, that by no means was that an isolated incident and it's still going on to this day. That's really sort of a natural Holocaust. But when I saw that happen and I know that the state of Arkansas was trying to convince us that 10,000 blackbirds fell out of the sky because they were scared to death for, from firecrackers. Right. But no one in the world believes that. Um, I thought, you know, that's a weapon. That's a, that's some kind of um, microwave weapon or electromagnetic weapon. I mean, they're testing something. And sure enough, um, when a necropsy was performed on those birds, it turned out that they had no external injuries, but all of their internal organs had essentially exploded. Right. So, you know, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to understand potentially what probably, excuse me, I, we can say probably what happened in that case. So this bring, brought me back in my mind again to all of the people that my mother was working with. They were working with these kinds of things. Okay. Now, um, 
I started to, what I, what I decided to do was write about it because I am a writer. Obviously, that was the way for me, to, one of the ways for me to work this out. So there was a book that came out of that. It's called The Sun Thief, and it is a very thinly veiled account of my uh, two things, really. My trip down memory, memory lane trying to piece together how this could have happened and the things in my memory, remembering how she could have ended up in a position like this on the one hand. Um, and on the other hand, um, the first thing I came up against when I started looking into this was, of course, chemtrails, because that's right in your face as soon as you start researching electromagnetics or, or um, atmospheric physics or any of those sorts of things, you know. And um, once I dove into that deeply, deeply enough, you know, I was absolutely horrified, like all of us are when we first start finding out about that. And um what the book gave me an opportunity to do was invent a character, a pilot. So I have two stories going in that book. One is the the true story of my mother and myself and my family and, and the journey that I went on to try to find out what the hell happened to her. And the other was the other is a story of a pilot that came to my imagination. I don't believe we actually write fiction. Um, it's still in my mind that when that situation is, is solved, when it's, when the truth finally really does come out, it will be from the inside. And I also don't like to write books that have dismal endings. I don't like to write hand ringers, Mel. I, I like to write books that have actually have um, solutions, you know? So well, how do we trust and, it? How do we trust it? When, how do we trust when the truth is allegedly coming from the inside? How do we discern? Well, yeah, you don't. I mean, you just have to keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. And I think that... Um, it is very difficult to do. Um, before we leave the topic of, of that particular book, though, let me just give a, a shout out to somebody who really helped me with that book. Sure. Um, I, when I first started looking into chemtrails and listening to interviews and things like that, there was a fellow called Mark McCandless. You've probably come across him. Yes, of course. Um, Marky is a really good friend of mine now. Because I came up against the aviation portion of this book and, and knew that I knew absolutely nothing about aviation. And I'd been listening to Mark's lectures. And Mark was the first person who made all of the absolute science, the basic science that goes along with understanding chemtrails, that understands with, uh, that goes along with understanding, you know, the absorption of the bioabsorption of aluminum nanoparticles and all of that stuff was Mark McCandlish. And so I contacted Mark. I didn't know him at the time. I just sent him an email and I asked him if he would have a look at the um, aviation in the book, because there's nobody in the world who knows more about black, you know, uh, advanced materials and, uh, and uh, skunk works and out there aviation than Mark. And he agreed to, not only did he agree to do it, but he spent about six months working on the book with me to make sure the wow. aviation was proper. Not for, and never once did he ask for a cent or anything, just a, just a thank you. You know what I mean? So I always try when I'm talking to the United States, especially in your neck of the woods, to give a shout out to Mark because he certainly deserves it. Certainly. Anyway, in terms of discernment, that is a very, very good question. Um, with all due respect to my current host, of course, uh, I have to say that it was necessary for me to leave the United States to begin with 
to finally get my information back into the United States. And that is because the U.S. tends to be under information lockdown. Have you, you kind of under, you kind of have a, of a relationship to what I mean by that? I have a be, feeling, but how about could, your, your side where you are? Isn't that a little bit cagey as well? Well, it is, but I'm actually using that, Mel, because the, because London is one of the three centers of, you know, uh, despicable activity in the world. Vatican, so Washington, D.C., and London. There you go. London is the um, economic center, the economic center of the spider right. web. So nothing is, it, it, everything that comes from London is given, it, is given a free, re, free ride out of here. And that's because they're doing, they're doing their business. And so it's like this, it's like riding the crest of the information wave here. They don't mm. stop anything really. And so I'm just kind of hitchhiking on the back of this information that, that flows from London unimpeded because they've got their business to do and it's got to get around the world. And so when I find, when I first came to London, I discovered that that was how I was going to be able to get my information back into the United States and around the rest of the world. Um, and that has turned out to be the case because the United States is very much in a bubble because it's very difficult to get information into the U.S. And by the way, it's just as hard to get information into Australia and the other English speaking countries. Oh, it's in fact, it might even be a bit worse, Mel. Um, coming to London is what allowed me to finally get my foot in the door in the United States and uh, be listened to. But you have to always be careful because, you know, you know, I, I don't want to pick on the United States, but I will say that I think, especially in the U.S., um, everything tends to be Hollywoodized and um, you end up with activists who develop huge egos. And do you know what I mean? And it becomes the cult of personality yes. and there's competition and, you know, just all this other stuff. And I, and, and I just, I, I feel like because I'm out here, I don't have to compete or participate in any of that. Do you know? Mm -hmm. And so it feels less heavy to me. It feels cleaner. And in terms of discernment, um, I think that we are always on our guard all the time. Do you know? Um, and as we go through the information that comes to us, it seems to me that, I don't know, 75% of the time, maybe, we end up finding out that part of what we just heard isn't true, or there's something shaky about whoever said what it was. But that's the other game people play around the, around the world, especially disinfo agents. They, they discredit each other. They discredit us all the time. And pretty soon you just have to, I mean, basically you have to trust your gut. I trust my gut a lot. There are a lot of people out there who prefer uh, scientific evidence. And there's plenty of that on almost every front. So as long as you're willing to do your own research, which is what my work ends up being, pointed toward you doing your own research, um, you either convince yourself that something is true or you convince yourself that something is false. You also get a really good sense, Mel, for what my husband calls the truth sandwich, which means there's, you know, a lot of truth wrapped in a lot of crap. You know, this thin slice of truth in the middle of the sandwich with, with a slice of lies on one side and a slice of lies on the other. I mean, the powers that be are really, really good at concocting that kind of stuff. So you do get a sense, but, but the thing is you have to do a lot of, um, 
a lot of research and get a lot of information under your belt. So you have a, a database, an information base to work with, you know? When you talk so, about anyway. when you talk about the, we can st- now start diving into all this. And by the way, if I feel my my asking, your co-author Harold Cotvilla, I'm not yeah. sure if I'm pronouncing the, the name correctly. Yes, but something happened with him lately. Can you share with us? I certainly can. In fact, let me take you really briefly through the um, timeline for that because um, it's just interesting. I think. When I first got over here, uh, I had my first interview with it was with a fellow called Joe Conrad. Joe's German, and I have um, I'm I'm exceptionally lucky in that I'm married to a German, and he's an obsessive researcher, and he translates things for me, and he um, allowed me to connect with Germany, and subsequently with Russia from there because they're doing all kinds of really good work. Anyway, so Joe Conrad gave me an interview, took the interview back to Germany. And that uh, it was translated into German and someone picked up The Sun Thief and had a publisher and had that translated into German. Now, she had a slight, a small array of translators that I could work with. One of them happened to be Harold Kautzvela. And as soon as I saw his name, I knew I was meant to work with him in some way. So I said, this is the guy. I need to work with this guy. He happened to be in Norway at the time, broke, couldn't get home to see his family. So it turned out to be a really good thing that he was paid to translate The Sun Thief. And he did a really good job. And in the end, he hitchhiked, if you want to call it that, from Germany to London to meet me. Um, Just trusting that the universe would take care of him because that's very Harold. And it did. And we met, sent him back, and everything was really good. We we did a few uh, lectures together, but we didn't really have much much traffic with each other after the interview was done. Then we, excuse me, then we ended up on the same lecture panel in Germany. And as soon as I saw him again, I, I had one of those feelings. I said, we're supposed to write something, Harold. I don't know what it is yet, but we're supposed to work together. Now, at that time, I was working for David Icke at The People's Voice. I was a producer there and a writer-researcher, which you may not know. No, I do. But but I was. And um, so I had access to the ability to to do some interviewing and to do some things that I might not have had the ability to do prior to that. Anyway, so... Um, Harold and I did decide to do the book, Dangerous Imagination, Silent Assimilation. And what happened was I was being interviewed by Richie Allen on The People's Voice one day. I worked as a researcher for him for a while about The Sun Thief. And he asked me the same two questions that everybody always asks me. Number one, what's the difference between a contrail and a chemtrail? Okay, fair enough if you're just coming up against that. But and then the second thing he said was, now, listen, they people are always saying to me that too many people would have to know about this for this to be happening. And as I was literally as I was answering those questions, Mel, I thought to myself, this is a hamster wheel. This is a hamster wheel. We are on a hamster wheel. That's why we can't ever get away from questions like that, particularly those two questions. And, you know, you just have these moments when you you know you've busted through to some kind of understanding for yourself. What was the host, let me do interrupt, was the host asking you because he wanted to present a one-on-one version of chemtrails and he knew what the answer was? Or was he naively asking you that? Mm-hmm. 
I'm not really sure because I could never tell what Richie Allen really believed or didn't believe. But I think he was just doing that because he thought it was good journalism. You know, that those are the questions that he figured everybody would want to would want to have answered. Anyway, so um, what that led me to do was was look into the why. Why is it? How is it we became entities that are allowing ourselves, uh, allowing this to happen to ourselves? And why can't we get past these questions? So anyway, that's, that's the social engineering half of the book. That was my half. Harold donated and expanded on his open mind conference lectures from Norway from 2012. And he added what he rightly considers to be the demonic aspects, the black magic aspects of, of, chemtrailing and something that he calls black goo. And most people call it that. I call it sentient oil. It's something I can talk about in a minute if you'd like to. Anyway, sure. we um, we did work together for quite some time and understand that Harold and I are actually good friends. We have we have we like each other and we have had lots of, of really deep conversations and we've done um, lots of work and lots of interviews together. However, in as we were doing this book together, things kind of started to go south with Harold. It was really, it was really odd, but it's traceable for me in retrospect. For one thing, when once the book came out in English and he was supposed to be translating, he never, he just never could quite get it translated, even though he had been paid to do it. It took months and months and months. We finally had to hire someone else to finish it. Uh, we were on a different radio show in the United States. And he piped up out of the blue that there, that, that in fact, there was an extra chapter he wanted to add to the book. Um, and essentially what it, what he wanted us to say was that evil has won. And if we would just accept the fact that evil has won, then we would be able to start, Oh, you know, it, we would be able to get somewhere and that there were a couple of entities that he felt he was channeling, from some intradimensional space that could help us out. Now, that was a shock to me that he would say something like that. And he asked me how difficult would it be to pull the book off of the out, out of publication and add this chapter. And I said, I'm not going to add a chapter like that because a it's, it's nonsense. I don't believe it. And I won't put it in the book. So I don't, yes, I don't know if I'm, you know, I actually don't know if that's in the German translation or not we we finally did get the german book out on the market um and my german publisher is really bollocks at telling me what's actually going on so i don't know if it's actually in the german translation but it certainly isn't in the united in the american translation which is a brilliant book it's a crackerjack book i mean it's meant to be a no excuses book the why and the what the how and the what and all of that sort of thing um anyway so what happened is he started this downward spiral i was doing a he and I were both doing a um, conference for Miles Johnston and um, he flew over as a walk-in for Simon Parks. Simon Parks has been really flaky the last year and he keeps bailing. Um, so at the last minute we brought Harold in to go on with me instead of Simon and um, flew him over very Harold. Miles picked him up at the airport. He'd been wearing the same shoes for so long that he literally threw them out the car window they were disgusting. He had to stop oh. at his store and buy a new shoe. Do you know what I mean? He just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. And he was getting very, very thin. A lot of people had remarked on on how he was actually looking. Didn't He looked like he was about to keel over and die at that point. Anyway, so we did the um, 
we did the conference and uh, we were standing in the parking lot of, of the barge where Miles loves to take people. And he said, I said, you know, it's probably time that I finally meet your girlfriend because he lives with this woman. He said, okay, but if you come and you meet her, be sure you don't have any issues because she's ruthless. And I thought, well, what in God's green earth does that mean? Do you know what I mean? So in the end, he was, it, it was very clear that he wasn't himself, Mel. It was very clear that something was going on. And I knew something was going on. So I started sending emails and things, you know, wake up, something's not right. What's happening? You know, that kind of thing. And um, he just kind of slipped away. You know, he, he got very angry with me for confronting him about it. And um, he got very angry with everybody who had interviewed him and had anything to do with him in England. And he was issuing these, he was issuing these uh, little video clips from his house in German. Of course, we're going to find out about it. I mean, I don't really know how he could she be the handler. Yep, absolutely. That's I think that that's um, that's a, that's a very distinct possibility. In the end, I was told that he's got he had gotten sucked into this group of five or six people. And, um, there was really just no reaching him. There was just no reaching him. So, um, there was really nothing for me to do except go on with my, with what I was doing. I am, I'm given to understand though, that recently he's made contact with Miles Johnson that, uh, and by the way, Mel, we were really good friends. So if he's much better if he is much better, I would know that because he would have contacted me to say, oh, my God, you were right. There was something really wrong. You know, what? Up? But he's I, I haven't heard anything from him since that was September 22nd. However, Carrie Cassidy has invited him to be part of her conference this summer in England. And so if he's if he's better, I suppose he might participate in that. I don't know. I, I don't work with him anymore. And unless I were convinced, as you, as we say, you have to use discernment. If I, unless I were convinced that he was okay, I wouldn't work with him again. I know, However, I know, uh, Miles. I wonder what he has to say. Well, Miles, I don't know. You can, you can certainly contact him, and he'll talk to, talk about it. I know, um, you know, just like yourself, I'm sure, and like all the other uh, alternative uh, media hosts, you know, you try to be neutral. Um, right. You know, you just you just do because, you, as you say, you need to use your discernment. You don't know. You can't ever really know what's happening to somebody. But I think you're on to something there. A lot of people did wonder if this woman was uh, was his handler. And um, whatever's going on, whatever's going on with Harold, uh, we can only just wish him the best, I suppose. Right. Certainly. And uh, and hope that it doesn't come to sabotage, because honestly, it felt very much like sabotage to me. It felt like sa somebody was sabotaging that book. That book is very, very important and it needs to get out. Now, you know, um, Harold self-identifies as Draco and that's okay. I mean, I don't know if your listeners have any relationship to that sort of thing. But because uh, I don't know how far you delve into that kind oh, of thing. Oh, very deep. Show. Yes, we have very heard deeply. about Draco, sure. Okay. Well, he told me that himself. Uh, he self-identifies as Draco. I self-identify as Faye, which is uh, something I'm bringing in my next book. 
because I've been given a lot of information about that. It's coming out of Germany. It's not been accessible to the United to an English speaking audience. Um, Let me say something about Germany, if you don't mind my interrupting yeah, for a please. second. Yeah, please. No, please. I've always found interesting. We have plenty of listeners in Germany, but sometimes yeah. and Australia. And in Australia, they have a hard time sometimes. Our websites are blocked depending oh, on the program yeah. that we're broadcasting. Yeah. But Germany, mm. it's almost as if this there's this shield above that country yeah. that doesn't allow these kinds of topics to be disseminated throughout the country. And right. I wonder why, and I think I have my suspicions. Well, first of all, Germany, poor, poor Germany. I mean, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and that's just um, intuitive on my part. Um, <clears throat> they've never been at peace. Uh, you know, they're still at war technically with the rest of the world, not because right. they want to be, but because the allies refuse to sign any sort of uh, peace, peace negotiation or peace treaties. Um, and, and, and since world war two and since um, the Frankfurt school and since the Tavistock Institute and all of these social engineering um, entities really became global, um, Germany became a social uh, engineering lab for the rest of the world, really. And a lot of things are, are enacted there on those poor people before they're act enacted in the rest of the world. Um, and this is what the, I mean, I found this to be true. On the other hand, what I have found to be true is that, that the Germans are working uh, at great risk, life and limb, uh, very, very hard to to discover the truth for themselves and to get the truth out as much as they can. Certainly they are working. I mean, I find more uh, research going on, more very courageous and brave research going on in Germany than in the United Kingdom by an order of, by orders of magnitude, Mel. I mean, they really are working hard over there. And there's a lot of good stuff coming out of Russia right now as well. And one could argue that that's on purpose, that, that it's being allowed out now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not true. It just means that we're, we're gaining access. If we can find a way to gain access, we can gain access to these sorts of things. So um, Germany is very, very important. And uh, um, it's been under the gun for, you know, for a very, very long time. It's actually, in my opinion, been under the gun since the Teutonic Knights were turned loose on the German tribes. There were, I don't know, 170 of them, maybe. There were just countless gorgeous German tribes, and the Teutonic Knights were turned loose on them to create a synthetic entity called the Prussian Empire. So it's been a very long time that the, that that country that that area of the world has been um, sort of under attack, you know. I'm trying to find a. I don't know if you know who Dr. Dr. Richard Sauter is. I don't, but give me his topic because I may have heard it. Well, he discusses many topics: underground bases around the world. He discusses mm. nuclear proliferation. But I'm looking here at our forum for the specifics of what he gave me, and I just, uh, perhaps later in the show, I'll find it. Okay, Some spe right. specifics of a an agreement that Germany, it, basically, they don't have any right to no, publishing movies, television, books, you name it. It's mm -hmm. also controlled by, you know, who. So they have no right yep. when it comes to that. And I'll try to find the specifics of that later. Yeah, okay, very good. And I wouldn't surprise me a bit. They don't have any rights at all. I don't know why they don't just kick us out. 
But, you know, there's always this, the, the, the entire planet is suffering from Stockholm syndrome. There are, you know, uh, structures set in place that, uh, you know, there's just so much going on right now. There's a, uh, right now, this is probably going to start some controversy on your end, but the immigration situation in yes. the EU is meant to, is meant more than anything else to destroy Germany. Everybody else is throwing up their hands and saying, no, we can't take any more. And uh, Chancellor Merkel is keeping their borders open. Just let them all in. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So we discuss this all the time here. We know why. And some people say, yes, Mel, but it's because we're bombing Syria. But yes, but no, who's behind all not. of this? Who benefits from exactly. the Syrian country? If you bombard all these towns and cities, mm-hmm. somebody's going to take over those cities and somebody's going to take those immigrants too. So this is a killing two birds with one stone, right? It is. It is. This this plan has been in place for a very long time to uh, to flood the EU. First they formed the EU and then they're flooding EU the EU with immigrants who really aren't they're certainly not I mean there are some refugees involved, yes, but mostly they're not. It this is a this is politically this is an economic migration of able-bodied young males, you know? This is you know, it's just been meant to take down the EU. And it's really unfortunate because it's not even a topic that we can comfortably talk about because it's politically incorrect to do so, you know? Why do anyway, you think I'm, that is? What do you think that is? And are they trying to decimate the German? I hate to sound, because <laughs> I'm not yeah. trying to be racist here, folks. Please, you understand. Right. Are they trying to decimate the German population? Because they don't want another reinvigorating of what happened after the Weimar Republic. No, I don't think that's why they're trying to do it at all. I think that, that yes, they're trying to destroy the German population, but it goes much deeper than that. Okay, the Germany has, as does every folk soul on this planet, whether it's you know the American folk soul is very unique and distinct. Australia, you know, Latin America, the Latin folk soul. Every country and every sort of cultural um, grouping has a very strong folk soul. It's almost, indes- in fact, I believe it is indestructible. The Russians have a folk soul that's indestructible, right. okay? And the Germans and all of these folk souls, they reside in the morphogenic field. They are what we draw our strength from. They are what we gather together before we incarnate on this planet so that we know we have an agenda of things that we need to do while we're here, both for ourselves and for the communities that we live in. And so it's very, very important that we, that we incarnate in, in, in the folk soul that will allow those things to happen the most easily or the most properly. Anyway, no, this is about destroying the German folk soul, which isn't going to happen. I say this time and time again, the folk soul is, 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 is the thing that's indestructible. It resides in the morphogenic field and they can't really get it. When the EU was put together, I was absolutely horrified because I thought, oh my God, Those, you know, all these beautiful cultures, please, you know, don't do that. Keep your cultures going strong and beautiful. And they really haven't been able to destroy the cultures. They haven't been able to do it. Well, that's why it doesn't Uh, work. 
Yeah, the folk souls are going strong in the morphogenic field. You just can't do it. So it's the German folk soul they're after. By the way, and, um, I found yeah. I found the little paragraph if, if I can read it. Oh uh, yeah, let me let me hear it. It says two days prior to the enactment of the German Constitution of twenty three May nineteen forty nine, a mm-hmm. secret treaty, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, the Geheimer Stratford Strag was signed, yeah. which gave complete Allied control over electronic and print media film, yeah. culture, and education until the year 2099. So keep a few yeah. generations brainwashed for 150 years, and no one will ever remember what really happened. A very clever exactly. plan. Exactly. In fact, I need to, um, I haven't heard of that one. I need that one. I'm sure my husband knows about it, but I don't know about it. And I need to know about it because it goes in my, it goes with my work. It goes absolutely with my work in terms of um, taking away our, well, Taking away our hum- or trying to take away our humanity and our ability to function as sovereign individuals, right? Absolutely. I mean, the sovereign, the sovereign individual, that's the American folk soul, isn't it? And look how badly that's under attack. Everybody's under attack. It Everybody. makes you wonder. It makes you wonder if the Bolshevik Revolution, the USSR, mm-hmm. and then China were mm-hmm. just um, blueprints, beta tests of what may be coming to America because it's what it looks like. Yeah. Well, there is a lot of talk right now that um, the United States is going to be the new Soviet Union and the Soviet Union is going to be the new, new United States. <laughs> and that's all right. That, and that, that has always been the plan. That, that's, you know, we're still kind of looking into that geopolitical, you know, flip flop. I think that's probably already in place. I'm not really sure what's happening in, the, in, in Russia because I'm not there. I know we're getting a lot of information out of Russia, a lot of really, really good information that certainly we've never been able to get before. Um, and I know that the United States looks more like a gulag than anything. And uh, so I think that that's probably true. The Bolshevik revolution was, as was everything else, manufactured right around the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. The Bolshevik revolution failed because of the Russian folk soul. The, the fact that they failed because of the Russian folk soul is why we had the Frankfurt School develop. These were failed Frodo-Marxists who wanted to, to, who wanted to recreate the conditions that they thought could, could um, the Bolshevik Revolution was going to create in Russia. And they wanted to make, they just took it on the road. They wanted to make it global. And the only reason it's called the Frankfurt School is because they ended up at the University of Frankfurt. It doesn't really have much to do with it being quote unquote German. It's just that that's, it was um, a German fellow who had been residing in, in South America who funded them. And they had a home at the Frankfurt School for a while. And then they, then they migrated to the United States, became, they became the Institute for Social Research. They were originally headquartered at Columbia University. And um, they've been responsible for um, all of the social engineering in the United States since then. They were deeply, deeply funded by the Rockefellers in the 30s. More money was spent on the Institute for Social Research than, I mean, it was an enormous amount of money right before the stock market crashed. And they they have been responsible for gathering data in the United States to help, quote unquote, move the herds. And that was a direct result of, of people gnashing their teeth about what happened in Russia during the Bolshevik Revolution. It just didn't go the way they planned for it to go. 
Now, well, these are people. What were they trying still- to do then? If it didn't go the way, obviously, it didn't go well because it right. lasted less than the average life of a human. Right. Well, problem. Part of what they were trying to do was make sure that um, that there was no memory of Russia as it the beautiful the beautiful part of Russia, the ancient part of Russia, the folk soul of Russia. They were trying to eradicate that and make it into um, a strictly communist state. But the Bolsheviks and the communists really weren't the same thing. The Bolsheviks tended to be the psychopaths of the, you know, at the psychopathic edge of, of communism. The Trotskys. Yes, the one, they're the ones that committed all of the atrocities, the genocide, created the gulags, made Stalin possible, you know, things like that. So the Bolsheviks, you know, there's always been the psychopathic edge to every social revolution since, well, God, I don't even know, since Prussia for sure, since the, the Prussian army was put together, yeah, which would have been, I don't know, 1700, 1750, something like that. I don't know the date that that was actually um, put together. My knowledge about Prussia uh, tends to center around when the Teutonic Knights, supposedly it was about 1125, um, went to went to where Germany is now from, they, they were given their marching orders from um, the Templars in Jerusalem. They came from the Templars. So it could very well have been, if you're familiar with this idea of the Archontic infection, sure. that, that seems to have begun around, seems to have begun. I mean, I'm getting all kinds of new information right now. Um, a beyond dangerous imagine silent imagination silence assimilation i've been working for the last four or five months on something called the false chronology which is something that's been coming out of russia can and, you comment uh, yes i can i've got uh okay well here's what's going on let me let me back up to just a little bit so you know what's what's up um oh reminds me before i get too far away from it I want to tell you some of the things that happened to me while I was writing The Sun Thief because I don't have a mountain of evidence that my mother was killed, but I have a lot of circumstantial evidence. And some of those things have to do with my brakes failing in my car, with with, uh, somebody trying to run me off the road into oncoming traffic when I was driving her car. And the day that that book was finished, Mel, my house burned to the ground. Hmm. So you see... That has been only four years ago. Four years ago, I was just raising my children. Okay? Four years ago, March 31st into April 1st, my house burned to the ground. I ran back into the into the fire to get my book out of the hard drive. It was on a thumb drive. Oh, wow. You and were able to recover it. I got it. Ugh. That That's the sun thief. I got it out of the house. <laughs> they couldn't stop that book. They cannot stop that book because my mom is behind that book. Okay? And she wants that story out. Anyway, okay, so back to sort of giving you an idea of what I'm doing right now. I decided once I wasn't working with Harold anymore, at least for the foreseeable future, I, I, I don't see that happening again, unfortunately, that I would take this book that I was working on, uh, Dangerous Imagination, Silence, Assimilation, and I am going to create a trilogy from that called The Imagination Chronicles. One of the things that I'm working on as an overarching theme is that our imaginations, the human imagination, is what is the mechanism between the material plane and the morphogenic field. And that makes us very, very valuable. It makes us very valuable to any entity who wants to become a co-creator, whether that's AI 
or uh, the you know um, an alien predator or an interdimensional being, anybody who cannot co-create, who cannot do what we do, and I believe we're the only ones who can do it. That's why we're such a valuable commodity. Um, anyway, anyone, any entity who wants to be able to create has to is is trying as hard as they can to harness the imagination of the human being thinking that they can manipulate the morphogenic field in that way. There's all kinds of ways that's going on. Isn't that the innate innate uh, reason for humans existing? We have to always be creating, and they're trying to take that away from us. Without imagination, you cannot create. Exactly. But they really can't get to it. They can't get to it, really. It's really, really interesting. One of the ways they try to, sh well, there's a hundred ways they've tried to shut it down, particularly since the beginning of the 20th century, which is what my part of Dangerous Imagination is about. Primarily, it's about schools. My advice to you is get your kids out of out of the schools. I, hap I happen to be also a Waldorf teacher. It's um, I'm actually even teaching now, but it's uh, a pedagogy that protects the imagination. Everything comes orally. Walter and, so, and Steiner are the same, right? The, the yes, schools? Okay, they are. Sure. They are the same. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, it's very popular in North America. There are 250 Waldorf schools in, in North America. So um, it's actually also the fastest growing school pedagogical system in China now. I've had several interns from China in my classroom wow. recently. They want their lives back. They want their imaginations back. They want their art back. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to bring, they're trying to bring Waldorf education in. And it's a, boy, it's a real uphill battle because they've been so indoctrinated over the last hundred years, you know? Anyway, so what I'm trying to do is create a trilogy and I'm working on the second book right now. Okay. The second book is called The Workbook. Now, you, do you know who Duncan Rhodes is? You probably do. Sure, certainly. He, he does Australia. Okay. He he took a look at the first book, and he suggested that we serialize that book. But I didn't want to serialize that book because it was meant to go out together. It was meant to be a one-two punch, you know? And so there was no point, there was no sense to me in taking it apart. However, I'm going to take his advice on this particular book. When we get done, when I get done with the workbook, it's probably going to be five or six hundred pages long, and it's going to take me a good year to write, if not a little bit longer, because each chapter is really a standalone chapter. I'm calling them episodes. Episode Mel is a literary term. I am taking that back from the idiot box. So I'm calling each chapter an episode. The first one's already out. It's called False History, The Great Remembering. I am thinking of renaming it to be, of course, I can't because I get sued. But I, I'd really like to rename it The Real Game of Thrones because that's what it is. <laughs> and it's all about the science and the astronomy and the mathematics and the statistics for all of you out there who really feel comfortable with that kind of evidence and that kind of proof. Man, let me tell you what. It's there. And it and, um this is this is about a false chronology in which anywhere from 300 to 1200 years has been inserted in our timeline primarily to justify the rulers that are on all of the thrones around the world to to give them false histories to give them a a timeline that 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 they think proves that they deserve to be where they are okay so that's the first episode is out and it's um about 50, 60 pages long. Does that come, it, come from all the way from Egypt and the pharaohs? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Egypt, Egypt, Rome, 
um, Greece, Atlantis, they are all much closer to us than you think they are. Okay. There were survivors of the Atlantean culture within a couple of hundred years of us. Okay. And what I have done is take in this particular episode, this particular book, is I've taken about 2,000 pages worth of um, research by a fellow called Anatoly Fomenko, who's Russian, and he is a top-notch astronomer, mathematician, and statistician working with, uh, you know, well over 100 of the same, just like him. To pr- the, They've proved that this gap exists this this insertion exists in the history and they're they've 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 laid it all out and um statistically it's a hundred billion to one or something that that their data is wrong their data is virtually proved uh, mathematically statistically and astronomically and by the way that's one of the reasons and that uh, the flat earth theory has come into being it's there's several reasons for that but one of them is that um and I don't know how Mel comes down on this, and that's okay. We don't. It, it's not something. <laughs> I didn't expect that you were going to bring that up, but I, I don't mind discussing it because I do all the time. Yeah, no, I don't want. I, what I do is um, I go I, when I do lectures. Now I say I'm not here to argue the toss on the flat Earth theory. However, I will say that because I'm doing this work on on uh, the false chronology, that relies that relies on standard astronomy, spherical trigonometry, eclipses. Uh, the um, the traveling of the moon in, and and the constellations and predictable orbits and all of those things. So isn't it interesting now that um, all of this evidence is coming out of Russia that disproves the chronology that all of a sudden standard astronomy is on is under the the um, most virulent sort of attack. Do you know what I'm saying? I do, although I'm a little bit confused as to are they saying that we actually are living in a sphere or not. Yeah, they are. Of course they are. They don't care about the flat earth theory. Okay. Yeah, no, no, no. They they use standards astronomy to prove the point that the, the, the chronology is false. And so there are a dozen reasons that this flat earth theory has popped up. Now, one of them is to try to discredit standard astronomy because standard astronomy is what's going to prove what has proved that about 1,200 years has been inserted into our chronology and that there are a whole host of royal families on thrones that are imposters, that don't deserve to be there, that are predators, do you see? It goes back to that, amongst other things. Such as Buckingham Palace? Yes, such as Buckingham Palace. <laughs> you better believe it. Every every um, royal family in the, on the globe is related even if they don't look alike, the, the, the Japanese royal family is related to, by blood, to the Windsors, who are related to, you know, the, the Bourbon family, who are related to the, or, you know, the House of Orange, and on and on and on it goes. I mean, they're all the same family. They're all Prussians, in my opinion, and it all came from this false history justifying their reign. So... But what preceded anyway, them? What preceded them before the first, yeah. if you can go back to Atlantis or the pharaohs, yeah. weren't they promised almost like the caste system? You get to be a king or a pharaoh, and <laughs> after you die, you become a god. And maybe that's why the pharaohs died so young. Maybe they killed themselves expecting to be gods quicker. I don't know. I don't think that we know what we can believe. Um, Egypt is several thousand years closer to us than we think it is. Right. The same with Rome, the same with Greece. 
Um, there were middle, there were characters from the Middle Ages in Germany, the Habsburg princes, the Habsburg dynasty, that had direct contact with uh, Nero Caesar. Nero Caesar gave them rights within within the realm of Rome. These things were concurrent, and um, it's fairly common knowledge outside the English-speaking world. In fact, Mel, um, the chronology has been under virulent and aggressive attack by non-English-speaking um, Eastern Europe, Russia, Germany, uh, for a long, long time. Isaac Newton said it was it was crap. Right before he died, he wrote a book. I mean, I realized that Isaac Newton had his issues. We all know that. However, Isaac Newton tried very hard to get a book out, and he did right before he died, proving that the chronology was absolute nonsense. Okay, um, Johannes Kepler wrote that it was absolutely frightening. That it was that it just it it was absolute nonsense. Otto's, uh, Oswald Spengler, all of these people have been trying for a very long time to get people's attention in the English-speaking world that something was going wrong. Are you talking it's, about an information gap and the information was changed? Yep. The information was inserted. These are years that just didn't exist. I was it, this, this was at least a thousand years that was inserted into our history that just didn't exist. We don't know what year it is. According to Fomenko, um, well, this was created, the history was created in the 16th century by two Jesuits, which should not be a surprise mm-hmm. to anyone out sure. there. Yes, in um, conjunction with some Benedictine monks who were notorious for writing history, that, wh- however they were told to write history. So there were two Jesuits who wrote this history. There was uh, Johannes uh, Scaliger. So that's why it's called the Scaligarian chronology. And uh, this fellow called Dennis Patau, who styled himself Dionysus Patavius, those two are responsible for rewriting the history. Um, there is good evidence to suggest that Christianity did not exist as we know it by any stretch before the 14th century and that everything we know about it was invented in the 16th century. Really? This um, goes even yes. after the Council of Nicaea? You better believe it. All the, wow. That was a very important event. Right. We just aren't quite sure exactly when it occurred. If you look at the astronomical events that were supposed to have accompanied, for example, the birth of, of the man that we called Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. that would have happened in the year 1185. He's a medieval character. Okay. 1185, not zero or one. Not zero. So you tell me, Mel, what year is it? <sighs> Okay. So there's a thousand years added to the equation. More than that, though. There's 300, and then there's a thousand, and then there may be another 1,200. Now, what I've done is take 2,000 pages worth of research and try to distill that down into 50 or 60 pages and make it understandable, say why this guy has proved what he says he's proved, and I've I've pulled a couple of th- examples out so that you can see what kinds of things that he's demonstrated were false or different or, you know, not or shockingly not what we think they are. Um, and then I've given you all kinds of uh, access to, to the primary research that's out there. So if you want to look it up, look, look, you know, into it more deeply yourself, you really certainly should. In my opinion, you should actually buy the guy's books. They're not cheap by any stretch. Each one is 500 pages long. Can you but repeat frankly, the names again? Yeah, yeah. The guy's name is Anatoly Fomenko. It's F as in Frank, O-M as in mother, E-N as in nut, K-O. 
He has several volumes out of his research. You would be pouring through the math and the astronomy, but hey, maybe that's what you, you know, a lot of people like to do that stuff and that's fine. Um, and a lot more people don't like to do that stuff, which is why I tried to put something together that's very, very understandable. It's called, it's called the false chronology or false history, the great remembering. So who were the cultural editors that edited those thousands or, or plus years? Uh, that's two men, the Jesuits who worked for the Jesuits. Those were the Jesuits. I'll tell you what. Have you ever read the oath of the Jesuits? I bet you have. No, no, I have not. Well, you better look look it up. The Oath of the Jesuits. You're going to be stunned. It's breathtakingly violent. Okay? Breathtakingly violent. Now, there was a period of time. Let's see. The It was about mid-1500s when um, the Jesuits came into being. Okay? Then there was a pope, Clement Thirteenth, I think it was, but I, I'm pretty sure it was one of the Clements, who was so frightened by the Jesuits that he banished them. He had them disbanded. And he banished them from Rome, from every Christian country. And they were not supposed to be Pope, and now we have one. Right. Now we have a Jesuit Pope. However, uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, Pius X was captured and put in a Napoleonic prison. And about 1815, he was freed. And when he was freed from that prison, he gathered the Jesuits back together and made them the Vatican's attack dogs. Okay. And now, of course, as we know, they run the Vatican and they run just about, I mean, it's been there. It is their goal. It is their stated purpose to be the power behind every throne, the power behind every academic institution, the power behind every government. And they've managed. They really have managed. They really are behind just about everything you can think of. Now, I'd love to know who's behind the Jesuits because I don't for a minute think that they're the end. But yes, it was the Jesuits who decided what was going to happen. And about and this pope, about this pope, many yeah. people talk about how his 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 views are so different than his predecessors. Could he be a tool also in order to to reverse what you were saying? The USSR is now becoming the United States, and Russia is becoming what the United States used to be. Um, well, there's no question in my mind that he's a tool. There's no question in my mind that whatever it is that he's saying has a has a reason, has a purpose. Okay. Um, no borders, all those no sorts borders, of things. No borders, one world or yeah, the right. one world or the global, the global institutions. Um, I think this is Petrus Romanus. I don't know why I think this is the last pope, but I do. I really do. The you know the predictions that this would be the last pope. John Paul II mm -hmm. um, was told by, by, by a mystic during his reign that there would only be two popes after him. And uh, I th I'm sure he believed that. So Why do you happened. think uh, the, 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 the one that came after, what's his name, uh, Benedictus, Pope Benedict, <laughs> oh, what, why do you what think he say. abdicated after hundreds of years? I don't of not actually happening? think he did. I think he's still, I think he's, I think that if we think that he's not uh, acting as Pope still in some capacity, we're fooling ourselves. There's no way that that man just stepped aside. The Jesuits have an agenda. For whatever reason, it may be that um, Benedict wasn't doing it right or it wasn't working out right or, you know, they felt like they needed to remove him. Perhaps the child molestation, um, uh, the sexual misconduct of the Catholic Church 
uh, in general was becoming so unwieldy that they simply had to do something, make some sort of gesture about that. It could, it could easily be that. You're implying that he's more of a CEO and, and, uh, uh, Pope Francis is the quote unquote president, but he takes orders from Benedict. Well, it could be. It certainly could be, but you know, there's always a black Pope and a white Pope. That's right. It's not like, it's not like there's all, there's always two Popes. Always. And the black Pope works, who's the head of the, of, is it Opus Dei and the Jesuits? Right. Um, he's the one that pulls the strings. He tells he tells the Vatican what to do, and I'm sure somebody tells him what to do. But there's always two popes. You should never never think there's just one ever. And speaking of uh, no borders, maybe they need to take all those walls down around the Vatican City. Well, there you go. Right <laughs> <laughs> now, let's dive into your book here because this this is fascinating. You know, a lot of stuff we've heard before, but you put it in a perspective that, that gives me a lot of uh, uh, thoughts to ponder. But we have to take a one and only break. I didn't realize that one hour just went by, Kara. Right. So right. when we come back, I'd like to discuss, first of all, what are the three Ds of the yeah. 21st century? Debility, dependency, dread. Explain those. How can people buy the book, all your other books, and all the ones that are coming? Amazon. It's uh, Amazon's uh, the best way to get it. I know we have problems with Amazon, but let me tell you something. Um, I've tried doing it other ways. And uh, it, there are parts of the world that Amazon will only, for example, that Amazon will only sell it in Kindle form, which I don't like because you can change Kindle. But um, it's so expensive for me to get a book from, say, the United States to Sydney that we just have to cope with Amazon for the moment. Um, I'm looking at uh, book-on-demand places in, in various countries to see if we can do something about that. But for right now, it's definitely Amazon, okay? Excellent. And your website, once again? www.vortexcourage.me or my author's page on Facebook. Excellent. Folks, don't go anywhere. Fascinating talk. A lot of uh, revisiting of our hidden history with Kira St. Louis and much more. We'll go deeper when we come back. This is Mel Fambergas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, earthing and grounding products, supplements, our USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, fulvic acid, full body vibration machines, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the very test member section. Enjoy. Hello, darkness, my Talk with you again because a vision softly creeping left its scenes while I was leaving, and the vision that was planted in my brain still. Loose dreams I walked alone 
So 